You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Today is the final instalment of our month-long special on Spy Chiefs. Featuring former director of India's Foreign Intelligence Agency, the research and analysis wing, Vikram Sud. This episode is from the vault and was recorded during the darkest days of the pandemic when the museum was closed, infections and deaths were sky high and I was at home in my living room with Vikram at his home in New Delhi. While it doesn't feature the audio finesse of the episode since we joined Cyberwire, this is one of the episodes I am most proud of, because tracking down and convincing a senior Indian intelligence officer to come on the show was, well, let's just say, (laughs) extremely difficult. But we got there in the end, and I hope you think the effort was worth it. In this episode, we talk the intelligence landscape and the world's largest democracy, the founding of the research and analysis wing and some of its key milestones, China, Pakistan and the intelligence challenges of the region, the pressure involved in the top job and being responsible to the Indian Prime Minister, and the power of narratives in world history, but also for modern intelligence agencies. Vikram was the chief between 2000 and 2003, some very interesting years I'm sure you will agree. Please enjoy. It sounds like you're really busy and you're, since you have retired. Yeah, I think that's what the wife complained. She says, you got more busy now than, than you, were when you were working. That, that, was, that was a tough period, I think. The last two and a half years. Yeah. And I was the, yeah, yeah. It was, well, it was fun, I think. I think working in an intelligence organization is one of the most exciting things. Something keeps happening every day. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the adrenaline flows took over on the 1st of January 2001. 
and retired in March 2003. Two years okay, and a so, quarter. And so there were some interesting developments during that period, huh? Oh, yes, oh, yes. And, uh, <laughs> it started off with 9-11, and of course, then we had our own uh, parliament attack in December. And before that, before that, Musharraf had visited India. He'd been invited for a last-minute sort of peace effort by Vajpayee, the Prime Minister. And, well, there were quite a few of us who said it won't work, and it didn't work. So in reward of that, we got, one, an attack in the Srinagar Jammu and Kashmir Parliament, or the Legislative Assembly, terror attack. After 9-11, we got another one in December, when we had... Uh, the whole world coming to us, the British Prime Minister, the US Secretary of State, coming and telling us, oh, please hold your hand, don't do anything. We'll take care of these fellows. But of course, nothing really happened. It hasn't changed anything. But even before that, we had in 99, we had uh, Kargil, the attack on Kargil by the Pakistanis. And then we had the hijacking of the aircraft, IC-814 was hijacked by terrorists and taken to Afghanistan, Kandahar eventually, where we had to do a deal with them. So terror and violence and wars took a lot of my time. And then we had the Kargil Review Committee, so we had to answer questions to the committee on so-called intelligence failures. We were the fall guys, of course. <laughs> it happens every time. <laughs> I don't want you to discuss anything you're uncomfortable with. I want you to be happy. So I'm just going to go on the, the <laughs> I'm going to go on the last email that you sent me. <laughs> so <laughs> can you tell me uh, I'll, I'll 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 tell you what I what I can. I will definitely you can. tell you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, I tell you, well, the RAW, you know, the Research and Analysis Wing was formed in 1968, September 1968. It was hived off from the Intelligence Bureau, which was an all-police organization. And when the RAW was created, the idea was that it would draw talent from not just the police, but wherever it is available, in the civil service. And that they would also start direct independent recruitment from the open market. It was 1971 they started this, and I think it was a very revolutionary kind of a step. And personally, I think it could have worked. But unfortunately, Mrs. Gandhi, who was the prime minister at the time our organization was formed, lost elections in 75, and the intelligence agencies are very closely connected in our system with the prime minister. And the next prime minister was uh, Mr. Morarji Desai, whose moral standards and morality standards were very high, and he had that intelligence was a bad word. And he went about hacking REW in particular, and uh, there was a big, it was a big setback for the organization. 
you know, you're barely nine years old and you're going to face uh, this kind of a slaughter. So we had a setback and then Mr. Desai lost the premiership, but he had done the damage and gone. So when Mrs. Gandhi came back in her second term, it wasn't quite the same thing. And she was busy with, um, with a lot of other things. The uh, merger of Sikkim and then we had, remember, we had the Sikh troubles that time and she was assassinated in 84. So the 80s were a bad year. The United States was busy with its jihad in Afghanistan. Pakistanis were busy making their bomb. So the 90s were a period when the, uh, when our organization had, when the country had a series of prime ministers who came and left after a couple of years and not really paying much attention to this uh, aspect of their work or country's work. Things improved when when, uh, Vajpayee took over and we had a little more room to maneuver and play and be, and they seem to be doing things. And that's what I ended my career in 2003 when Vajpayee was still the boss, the prime minister. And so we're there. We do only external intelligence. We don't do internal at all. And we're not like the ISI, which does everything under the sun that they have to. They are there. It is owned by the Pakistan army, which owns the country. So it's East things a lot simpler there. We still have financial advisors and controllers and budget restrictions and et cetera, et cetera, which goes on. You know how it is in democracies. We we have to do all that. What's the domestic yeah. intelligence service? The intelligence bureau is our internal service. It's the counterpart to the um, MI5 or FBI and... Uh, we are like the CIA, not as powerful, but external, yes. And for a powerful country, you need powerful intelligence organizations. They are global, truly global. We are not. We are much smaller. Our interests are, was Pakistan and China to begin with, and then we added terrorism. And then then it, it just keeps growing now. The concept, the meaning of terrorism has has expanded in many ways. Now, money laundering, and human trafficking, all those aspects come into it because they're all, at some level, terrorism, human trafficking, weapon smuggling, drug smuggling, they all get interlinked. Sometimes the same group does a couple of things together. So we have to be there, also keep a watch on that. The area of focus for the RNAW, it's really... South Asia and China? Yes. And that's been so, but I think that's going to change. As we look ahead, and we look ahead, say, 2050 or 40, and as we hopefully grow bigger and better, we want to be a $10 trillion economy by year X. So our needs will increase. Our threat perceptions will change. And the threat, the quality of threat will also change because now it's going to be all artificial intelligence and computers and ciphers and cyber. So all that is is going to be part of uh, the 
the ability to deliver threats is changing and the ability to carry out threats also is changing in five minutes you can have a riot in 10 parts of the country on whatsapp flash messages all over and uh, the intelligence won't have time to react how did you find yourself in the world of intelligence when the organization was created in 1968 it was uh, like i said in the beginning an offshoot from the intelligence bureau many of the officers from the intelligence bureau came to the RAW to form the organization and uh, they were looking for people from outside the police to join there was some in our expression is talent scouting it actually means looking for new faces and so they sent around asking for people to join a mysterious organization in in the government whose name was still not known properly to many so you we all curious and it was supposed to be something secret and glamorous if i mean you know for youngsters i was young at that time i was uh, 27 no 28 when this thing flows floated so i put my hand up i said i'll have volunteer and um, they asked for then they went through the usual routine of checks and interviews and uh, kept kept a watch on me perhaps for a few weeks or months to the background and then one day i said they said come along join us so there i was uh, sitting in that organization and it was it took a while to get used to coming from a from a system i was i was in the civil service before i had done five years with them i was with the posts and telegraphs and then i switched and many people have asked me how come you come from an organization not really connected with intelligence but they were looking for people from outside the police so i was one of them that oh. happened in 1972 you know uh, the uh, isi was created by an australian 1948 so the isi is actually an older organization compared to the raw and raw was from the intelligence bureau which was part of the british establishment so on the 14th of august the intelligence bureau was answerable to the king of england as it were on the 15th of august it was answerable to the prime minister of india like the indian army all of us we were answerable to one person and quite different from the next morning so the the systems of work the traditions continued for a long time and then as threat perceptions have varied and changed so we have to evolve new ways of doing things and perceptions also change so but that's been an evolution it's not as if we said day one we're not going to do anything what they did no it couldn't be like that that continuity had to be maintained to make it a gentle transition that's a fascinating period from 1972 until you become the chief <laughs> in 2001 yes. and then you leave in 2003 i mean that's a in the history of south asia that's a fascinating period huh Yes, it was. It was. It is. A lot of things happened. A lot of things happened in in the world in these thirty years. Um, the Iranian Revolution, the the 
Soviets coming to Afghanistan, Vietnam War, and Bangladesh was created. And, you know, inside, in our area, in our periphery, a lot of things happened. Then you had the Iran-Iraq war, and then you had the Iraq war, and the Iraq war too, Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden. And, and um, I know somebody had asked me in 2002, take a guess, where would Osama bin Laden be today? Where would he be hiding? I said, no, well, I don't really confirm it, but he would be with the Pakistanis. And where do you think he would be kept? So I said, ah, if I were them, I'd keep him in Abbottabad. And that's where they found him eventually. Well, that's just a coincidence. I looked at the map and said, this place looks good enough. Close to the military academy, Sekeo, the other side of the hill. Not many people go there. So, so that's how it was. And there. What are some of the major things that RNAW were involved in over that time period? So 72 to you leaving in 2003? Our main concern in 72 was Pakistan's attempts to get the nuclear bomb. And I began my book, The Unending Game, with this very aspect of, I didn't say I, that uh, this was the thrust of the whole thing, how it was done, how we discovered that there are they're taking the uranium route, not the plutonium route. But they were not stopped by anyone. That's a pity. And tell us a little bit more about that book, The Unending Game. The Unending Game is actually a book that I decided to write. You know, after retirement, I started writing a lot of... I, I had a column in the newspapers, a fortnightly column. Then I graduated to doing essays for longer pieces for books and magazines then chapters in books, and then editing some books. Then somebody said, you're doing all this, why don't you sit down and write a book yourself? So I said, okay. I said, no, write a book on espionage, or what you did. I said, no, I can't do that. I'm not allowed to do that. It'll never get published. And if I exclude all that, it won't make a story. So I won't do any memoirs. And so we thought, thought about it. So I said, I'll do something on tradecraft. And tradecraft, necessarily doing something on tradecraft, in the modern sense, means talking about the Russians, Soviets, talking about the Americans, the British, the French. And this is where it happened, all of it. This is where the Cold War and everything else was fought. So naturally, a lot of my chapters are related to that aspect of the Cold War. And it's, it's a, it was a very fascinating period that went on. So I covered that. And then I also discovered that controlling the narrative is an essential part of the game for the government and the CIA or the intelligence agencies love to do that. It's, it's well, it's just done. Control the narrative to control the world. And that book has a chapter on controlling the narrative. And when I finished the book, I did one chapter on keeping intelligence relevant, which is mostly about India, what we should do for the future. And I've, and I've been looking ahead. I'm not saying you know, what's wrong with us now. 
You know, if you keep talking like that, you never get anywhere. What you have to do is to think about the future and say, if you want to be successful in 30 years from now, what should you be doing today? What would be the threats then and how would you be able to handle that? And are you prepared for it? That is what I try to argue. And I, 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 my constant refrain has been that if you reform intelligence and you must, your human factor is the most important factor. If that is not right, if that is not trained or motivated, all your technical equipment and all these uh, things will just not deliver. So uh, that's that's the, the main thrust of my book. I give instances and stories. And this is your most recent book, or this is the unending game? That is the first book. The ultimate goal is the new one. And that's about narratives. That how, uh, you know, the world, the world over, the major powers, uh, how they, you can have the best, army, the strongest military, the strongest economy, the best technology, everything else is good. But if your story doesn't sell, then you're in trouble. Also, it works the other way. The United States, with all its, the best army in the world, the strongest, best equipped, the entire globe is divided into military commands hundreds of bases all over, but they haven't won a war. It is still considered the strongest, the best, the mightiest. But that's the narrative. That narrative has held. See, so that is the point I'm making, that your narrative has to be strong. You have to tell the people who you are, what you are, what you want to do. And for us, I'm arguing by giving examples on how it is done, the world over. It's another conscious effort that somebody pins down on the blackboard. Today you shall do this. It's a thing that it's like the major establishments in the United States. One of the finest, the strongest, the best, I think, is the Council on Foreign Relations. It has the, perhaps the best brains that are there for this. Intellectuals, former presidents, corporate heads, journalists, writers, even actors, even, even, uh, I think, I don't forget, remember, George, uh, George, who, I forget his name, sorry, never mind. They are members of the uh, Council of Foreign Relations. They are, they are described in the West, in the United States as the Wall Street's think tank, or alternatively, the second st- Department of State. So that's that's the power. It's not it's not a conscious effort, but it's there, and they do it. And then you have the CIA working along with the Hollywood Hollywood uh, with Hollywood movies. Zero Dark Thirties was obviously an attempt to show that the extraordinary uh, interrogation worked. When we used to give intelligence to our Western friends. And they'll ask us where it has come from. We would say interrogation. They'd say, no, we don't believe your interrogation. Narratives and stories change with circumstance. And uh, there are still stories out on what happened to Osama bin Laden, how he was caught out, why he was, how he was caught out. So uh, 
narratives play a big role and and for us we were colonized the british didn't come to because they were uh, from the salvation army or they were red cross volunteers they were there to make money to build they were they were an imperial power so they behaved like one and uh, but we must learn from that we need not hold that as a rancor about it but we we let them do it they did it but what has happened is that over time we've not been able to get over building our own story ourselves we we love approbation from the west oh they they've liked what i said or they don't like what i'm saying i can't say it my interests and the you know united states interests may not tally all the time and they need not so we have to be able to put our point of view across to the west to the western governments look at the way these days these farmers are protesting all over in the west i believe because of some law introduced in india that is giving a narrative to to the west which may not be true so we have to counter that and there is also i believe there is nothing to be gained by complaining nothing to be complaining that the washington post or the new york times or the economist says there's that and the other about it. they will say it. you just learn to counter them or you anticipate and say what you want to say and have the means to say our problem is we don't have the means so far everything is controlled by a few companies media companies in the west reuters afp cnn the voice comes from there we we don't have the means yet we'll be right back after this Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. How did you become interested in narratives to begin with? When I joined service, when I was at college, let's say, we had the 62 war with china we had the 65 war with pakistan i was still at college and uh, soon after the 62 war we had visitors from the united states and uh, britain i think avril harriman and duncan sands they came and to evaluate how much interest how much they could help us very fine very fine gesture but there was a 
a clause, a hidden clause that we'll give you, but you know, you might want to talk to Pakistan about Kashmir kind of thing, a gentle nudge. But you do this. Okay, that passed. 65, we had a conflict with Pakistan and they, they attacked us. Uh, then we found that the Time magazine would say three third-rate armies fighting each other for nothing. That was the, you know, you, you started getting feeling that here we are trying to fight ourselves, find our way out, but uh, nobody wants to pay attention to what we want to do. And so it continued to happen that you could see that democracy was more and more a slogan. As I, as when I joined RAW, then I started to realize that certain things are only slogans. They're not meant to be taken seriously. The narrative is that the United States would bring peace and harmony and democracy to the rest of the world by defeating the Soviet Union and commons. Fine. Accepted. But who was helping the uh, this fight? 65 dictators all over the world. You have a narrative for peace and freedom, but you're getting support only from dictators. So there is, there was this anomaly. There was this, uh, and then of course, uh, once when you had the um, invasion of Iraq during Bush's time, Al Qaeda and weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, how he was treated afterwards or how Gaddafi was treated afterwards. So it left me with a feeling that human rights, democracies are good slogans to use. There is no such thing as democracy in the international sphere. Democracy exists only inside each individual country, if it does. Outside, only sovereignty is equal, perhaps. Power isn't. Power resides where it does, with the powerful. So they dictate what is to be the narrative, what is to be the storyline for the day. That's why I thought I should put my, that narratives don't have to be completely based on truth. You have to tell the world of your superiority, your invincibility, your nobility, the love for freedoms and, and democracy. But then the, the United States also covered its entire population with surveillance. When they listened into all conversations in the name of war on terror. That's what I try and describe. Narratives can go wrong. I've talked about the Chinese, the Russians, the, the Brits, of course. They are the originals. They are the original uh, United States. And I've also said what we should be doing. What is well, who are we? How do we describe ourselves to the rest of the world? And how should we be doing it for the future? If you want to be something, you must have a narrative. I'm personally interested in narratives yeah. and identity, but it's not often something mm -hmm. that's associated with intelligence because people think that people that work in intelligence are all hard-headed and it's all about how many tanks do you have and you know, yeah, yeah. How, <laughs> how, how big is your industry? But, but in your most recent book, you say that the power of narrative is more powerful than anything that comes yeah. out of the barrel of a gun. Yes. 
more and long lasting and long lasting yeah and this shows that the intelligence agents can be sensitive souls they can do <laughs> art art and literature and music <laughs> it's not all science and, and numbers <laughs> no it's not not always <laughs> and you, and you mentioned hollywood that that, that made me think as does the r and a w have a link with bollywood i know a lot of people have asked me that too but no we don't have they do bring out some movies which are a bit of an embarrassment <laughs> it's so remote, not remotely connected to the real thing they've had a few movies where they've shown glimpses of having trying to understand it was pretty well done and i thought but not a story Uh, which is purely based on espionage there's nothing like that movie uh, the the movie which we saw recently about rudolf abel can rudolf abel um, he was swapped for yes. francis gary powers if i recollect yes that's right uh, that's i i i begin one of my chapters with that story and um, how the narrative how stalin was able to change the narrative not just because avl but others got the bomb and what role do you think intelligence agencies can play or should play in shaping narratives are there particular challenges or dangers there i would think that the intelligence agencies have a role but sort of limited role to change the narrative narrative changing has to be little more open and, and uh, to be acceptable if it is done surreptitiously you can do a movie you can do uh, you can write books you can fund books you can fund uh, ngos you can do those kinds of things that the, the intelligence agencies are pretty good at but the big picture has to come from on high the intelligence agencies become the executors not originators they shouldn't be made the originators of the narratives but maybe the executors in certain fields they can glamorize a movie they can, i mean the united states would give its for many of these movies tom clancy movies the actual air, airports and aircraft for filming the shots so that level of coordination between the producer between the actors and the government agency involved has to be subtle and trusted then you can do it but if somebody is going to go around talking about it and say oh the raw helped me make this movie then it doesn't sell <laughs> i mean some people would find that a little concerning the government getting involved with the entertainment industry to try to advance a particular narrative yeah no that, that's true narratives therefore have to be done by the society what do we want to be how do we want to be seen and it should be left to the individuals sitting together and working out and after some time it becomes automatic that you you if the government say i shall tell you what to do then it becomes a, eventually just a propaganda and 
you must be able to have the ability to take criticism. Credibility requires that somebody must be able to criticize also. If everything is hunky-dory and everything is doing well and nobody is bothered about anything that's wrong, then it is not a good story. Your storyline has to be real. It has to be a societal narrative. It has to come from society yeah, as yeah, well. It, it has to come from. It has to come from society. Is that part of India's story since independence, the search for a unifying narrative? Not in recently. For a long time, we carried on with this belief that everything is fine with us. We live... Uh, secularism was given a, a slant, which meant appeasement. That's what the majority began to think. And I, we, we always say that Governments have to be secular, but the people have to be tolerant. Only then it works. Individuals, you and I are not secular. We don't have to be secular. We don't have to be equidistant from all religions. But we have to tolerate each other's religion or beliefs or thought or speech or whatever. But over time, it became necessary for, for you know, we are a majority Hindu country. And the ethos of any country comes from it's majority. And it's either Christian or Jewish or Islamic. It comes from the majority. Religion and language, maybe. So when the Indian votes, and he votes now more and more for BJP, it doesn't necessarily mean that India is becoming a majoritarian Hindu regime country. The Hindus will vote, and whoever votes for a party, that party will win. That's democracy. Now, if they vote a, a, a right of center party, it doesn't make that party necessarily a majoritarian party, which will exclude everybody else. But this is the story which we hear from the West about us. We're always a Hindu nationalist party, the BJP, is a favorite description. We don't call the Republican Party or, or the Christian Democratic Party of Germany any such name. But they are, they, they are the you know, U.S. president goes to a Christian breakfast the first Tuesday of February every year. Since the time of Eisenhower, only Christians are invited. So everybody has a majority theme, but doesn't mean excluding others. How does Indian society map onto India's intelligence agencies? Is, are, are the intelligence agencies reflect of society? Or are they bringing people in from different religions, different uh, groupings, or is it something different? You mean uh, ethnically or ethnically, religiously, linguistically? To be quite honest, when we started off, it was monthly ethnic, monthly religion, monthly linguistic everything. But there was hesitation after the partition of India to take Muslims into the service, intelligence service. But that is changing. That has begun to change, and people do realize that. Patriotism is not the uh, birthright of only one community, one religion, or one. Uh, so that has begun to change, and it will normalize one day. 
But it's not anymore a conscious effort to keep some out. It was in Amazon. It started yes, off a started. bit like that, yes. I remember when I was when I was studying India and Indian intelligence, is that there's more Muslims in India than there is in Pakistan. You're talking about I would say about two hundred and fifty million Muslims. Wow. Uh, that's that's not a minority, really, in many senses of the term. It's a huge, it's, it's, it's the four times the size of uh, France's population. So it's a big number and they're, they're doing very well in many fields. And they have problems, of course they have problems. Right? But their problems, I think, are not much different from what the problems of every other Indian in similar circumstances were, has been. So uh, to give it a religious color is, is a favorite political ploy, of course. And but some of our best commentators, some of our best journalists, artists are Muslims. And it never made matter to us. It doesn't still matter to us. Pakistan has does not know how to live with another religion. They don't have any other religion. That's that is their problem. They want to be Islamic, but they want us to be secular. And an Islamic country can never be secular. An Islamic country is always Islamic. But you Hindus, uh, Indians should be secular. Uh, that won't change, really. We're not going to be changing. And, and we are secular because the majority is secular and tolerant. But there are some bad ones that's there in every, every say, um, system, some extremists. A lot of our listeners are from the Five Eyes community. To what extent did you interact with people from those communities during your career? We interacted largely with the British, Americans, Canadians, because also because the diaspora was there. And the diaspora those days was sometimes tended to be anti-Indian and or the famous um, Kanishk Air, Air India bombing in 1983-84. It was shot down it exploded just short of Cork in Ireland, and uh, the entire aircraft had been blown up. It was done by Sikh terrorists. So there was a lot of liaison with the Canadians and the Indian intelligence. It had to be. And the diaspora in, in Britain is a big one, in um, the United States as well. But the other countries, not so much. Australia and New Zealand didn't have that. We in Indians didn't have the need to be to develop that kind of a relationship then. Things are different now. We have other reasons to be cooperating. Now you have the Quad and so on and so forth. So there will be more cooperation here. Talk a little bit about the Quad. The uh, Four Nation grouping of... Uh, well, the Chinese once asked us, after retirement, I'd met some Chinese, and they asked, is this the Asian NATO? So uh, they were worried that would be about 10 years ago when the thing was really being thought of. So I think the Quad has a long way to go. It's still an idea which the Indians will remain a little skeptical about joining, formally joining an alliance. They would do everything else, but to fight wars on each other's behalf, I don't know 
whether it would work and i don't think it will work i don't expect the australians to come and help us if the chinese were to do something to us tomorrow so uh, each ultimately it's each country to itself and cooperation to keep china in control or semblance of control not to fight wars really from your position as rnaw chief what are some of the major things that you were involved in or what are some of the highlights that the organization was involved in during then trade intelligence wise i wouldn't be able to say much security wise i had mentioned that you know we were in the throes of having to deal just a year before i took over the we had kargil we had uh, hijacking of the aircraft we had those terror related activities we had uh, terror became the main uh, story of our lives uh, during that period i was there and not so much hot wars or but terror from pakistan terror in pakistan terror by pakistan in uh, afghanistan that became the centerpiece of the story and uh, we had a lot of exchanges with the west on that and that was used to be the shall i say almost the everyday story and we did other things alongside we did china and pakistan but this was the hard battle most of the time so terrorism became the major thing that the rnaw was dealing with from 2000 on actually we started dealing with terrorism in the 90s when the pakistanis unleashed uh, various terror groups into kashmir and one after another they they create one remove it bring another bring another lashkar e taiba jaish e mohammad before that is bul mujahideen all these various groups so keeping a watch on terror keeping a watch in pakistan was took a lot of one's uh, resources and it continued till then ultimately it happened in 2008 you remember bombay november yeah. 26 2008 when bombay burnt really for three days it was a terrible attack it was uh, we we called we like to call it our 911 although the casualties were less but it was and there was a lot of anger there was probably even probably the government thought of retaliation but didn't so that's where it ended and terror hasn't stopped it still continues uh, as a one of the major battles only last year we had incidents in uh, pulwama we struck back in with an air raid and these major terror attacks don't come every day it's once in two years once in three years by the nature of things but everyday terror is there it's less now it's less than what it was there was a horrible period of the 90s when 300000 kashmiri hindus had to leave srinagar overnight very few people ever reach the position of being you know the chief of an organization what what's it like to have all that responsibility a lot depends on how in the indian system and how good your relationship or how good your political leadership is to you 
that makes the job much easier you know it, there is there is immense tension in the in the job because well anything can go wrong any day and you will be held responsible if there is a, another bomb blast somewhere else so but if the leadership is is supportive and it's understanding and also contributes to helping you decide things or takes decisions for you that need political clearances that helps a lot that takes away the anger the anxieties it keeps the blood pressure down keeps it even <laughs> <laughs> and who does the rnaw chief reporter the prime minister uh, directly to the prime minister wow and for our listeners within the rnaw is it similar to for example the cia where you have analysts you have operators yeah. you have technical officers yes yes yes, yes. okay we have all and, that and one of the things that i'm personally fascinated in is the soviet afghan war i wondered if you could tell us mm-hmm. a little about that if that was part of your career i was still young in the service and i wasn't ending afghanistan so my knowledge about afghanistan was what i read in the papers not what mm. they were doing or not doing inside we operated with the restrictive security principles so one didn't get to know much one didn't ask too many questions that was taboo okay but as one as one went along and when the second when 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 the war on terror started bush's time then of course everybody knew then we were i was in the thick of it in the sense that we were sitting there at the head with the afghan global war on terror had started so there was a lot of activity there was a lot of exchanges with the afghans but that's it naturally i mean if you have something happening in your neighborhood your intelligence agencies will get involved will want to know help the government come to a decision of some sort what are some of the things that you think our listeners should know about indian intelligence agencies there are three main intelligence groups today groupings or agencies today one is the intelligence bureau which is the oldest which was formed uh, by the british originally and it was not called intelligence bureau in the first place called the political branch and then it became the intelligence bureau later and rw came in 68 and in 2004 we had the ntro the national technical resources organization like the american uh, nsa it's for purely for technical intelligence so they do that the many of our para, paramilitary organizations they have a large number of them the border security force the indo tibetan border force the border force and the special services bureau which is for the nepal and sikkim borders uh, nepal and bhutan borders so they do tactical intelligence for them for their own requirements for cross border the army has the armed forces have the dia 
Defense Intelligence Agency with air intelligence, military intelligence, and air naval intelligence separately. So they also do mostly tactical intelligence and purchases, military hardware acquired by. They don't do political analysis. The RAW does is an all-source agency which is supposed to provide to the government intelligence related to all strategic aspects that relate to the security of the country, which could include military, economic, political, scientific, all that. So we take material from everybody else, uh, from their, so their reports, and our own reports, our own signal intelligence, whatever you can lay your hands on from the NTRO to get a composite picture and then present it to the government. We don't do policy. They may ask, the government is willing to, is free to ask us, but on matter of principle, we merely give you the assessment of the situation. It's for the political leaders or the Indian Cabinet Committee on Security to take a decision. And is there an Indian equivalent of the president's daily brief? No, it's not a daily brief in the sense that it is presented to the president every morning. In India, it's given to him, it's sent by mail to him, to the prime minister every evening, which is one document that the head of the organization must sign and be held responsible so is, next morning. <laughs> this is something that you had to sign off on and be responsible yes. for. Every, 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 every night, <laughs> sign off and hope <laughs> for the best. <laughs> Were there ever any times where you signed off on something and crossed your fingers? <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not in a major way, but yeah, <laughs> it was pardonable. <laughs> a lot of the energy of Indian intelligence is focused towards Pakistan. Would that be fair to say? Look, it's, it's changing now. It's, it's changing in the sense that China is, is, is a big problem for all of us. And we have, I think, the, the, that would be a, a zone where they would need to pay much more attention to what the Chinese could, might do. We've seen what has happened in, in our borders in Ladakh. Two years ago, it was in, the, in near Bhutan. And there is a, a sense of aggression in China. Maybe it's premature hubris, I don't know. But Xi Jinping seems to be somebody in a hurry. And he is, as we like to call him, the chairman of everything. He, he owns everything there. And the party owns everything else. So there is, there is a push. And you can't have a normal relation or trade relations with a country which is going to do this to you. I mean, at least for us, it is not, not possible to have a border which is undemarcated, which is liable to be transgressed in, by any side, any time. You have a nuclear power to our north, nuclear power to our west, and the one on the west is willing to use it any time. It carries on its nuclear, it carries on its terrorism under a nuclear umbrella. But 
despite that, Pakistan has not made a difference. Well, not made a difference to our lives, but China can. So that would be the ultimate threat. Pakistan, you, I think we will learn to handle it. Pakistan is probably clobbering itself on its own feet, so it's okay. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for having me and for on your show. Keep the good parts there, right? Well, <laughs> make sure. Where I look good. Where I look good. <laughs> That's all of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Bless you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show.